There is a true Christianity and there is a false Christianity. So how do you know if you under, have understood Christianity for what it really is? Well, if you do, what you will find out is that Jesus absolutely changes everything for you in every single way. The word gospel, it literally means good news. It means joyous news. It means it's, this is the greatest news that you have absolutely ever heard. True Christianity does something. It holds both the good news and the bad news in a tension. In tension. It, they pull on each other. If you, here's what happens. If you don't understand the bad news for what it really is, then Christianity will never sound like the greatest news that you have ever heard. Have you, have you watched survival shows where there's somebody searching for food, the person is starving, and they're searching out for food, and then finally they catch some food. It's been like two weeks, they finally catch some food, they cook it up and on the fire, and then they take that first bite, and when they take that first bite, it looks like it is the greatest piece of food that they have ever had in their life. Unless we understand the reality of the bad news, we will never be starving for the good news of Jesus Christ. We won't starve for it. What I want you to do for a minute is picture me as a cross. So the left arm of the cross is the bad news, and the right arm of the cross is the good news. And so when both are held in tension, what happens is the cross is lifted up, and then it is pointed up to God. And it's only when both of these are held in tension that you actually meet the real God of Christianity and you understand Christianity for what it really is. You probably, well, think about it like this. So the left arm of the cross, if the left arm, the bad news is lifted up, then what happens is the cross is pointed over this way. It's not pointed up to God anymore, and you don't have a good picture of God. You're not meeting the real God, but you're meeting a perverted version of him. The same thing with the good news. If the good news is only lifted up high, then the cross isn't vertical anymore, and you don't have a picture of God, but a perverted version of him. And you've probably got some sort of image in your mind of a church that only focuses in on the bad news. It's a church that sounds judgmental. It sounds condemning. And they talk about the wrath of God only. And you're like, man, I don't feel like I can fit in in this place. But also, there are churches that will only talk about the love of God. And that's it. And here's what happens if you only know about the love and the grace and mercy of God, you never understand what you are being rescued from. And that, here's what that means. You're left with a God who is without sacrifice for you. True love is a costly love. And if we don't come to understand the costly love of God, we will never see why we ought to worship him. He'll just be a God that's kind of dancing out in the sky, but there's no, he will never be a God that really has done something that has changed everything for you. And you'll never discover his glory, his beauty, and his worth. So it's only when there's an emphasis on the bad news and the good news 
that you understand God for who he is. And when you meet him, it feels like that survivalist that's taking that first bite of food that the survivalist has been starving for. And the reason that we have so much trouble actually wanting to worship God is because these two are not held in tension. So the verses that we are looking at today hold both the bad news and the good news in tension. So we're in John 6, verses 16 through 21. It's up on the screen. Read along with me. It says this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed for about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Jesus' entire mission is summed up right here where we see a visual of Jesus. This is his entire mission, and the visual is this. He's walking upon the waters in the midst of a dark, stormy night. And the water represents the bad news, and Jesus walking up upon it represents the good news. So what I want to do for a minute is I want to jump into the waters that represent the bad news. I want to talk about the bad news, and I want to ask you to jump in the waters with me. It's not going to necessarily be fun, but we're going to jump in. So in the Bible, water represents judgment, it represents disorder, and it represents death. And not only that, the disciples are in the midst of a storm. So the lake that they are in to this day produces violent storms. And and along with that, it's dark now. And when we read through John, what we see very clearly is that for John, darkness means hopelessness. So what we're being shown here is that there is an internal and an external storm happening within us and all around us. And the external storm is that our world is in disorder. Our world is broken. Our world is chaotic. Something is wrong here. There's suffering in this world, and there is pain. And some of you guys right now are experiencing that very clearly. I saw this week a Facebook video of a popular atheist who was... Who was who basically said this, there's no God because when we look at the world, we see that it is bad. He said, but if there is a God, we know that he's not good because if he was good, he wouldn't make the world this way. And then he said, but we could also say that God isn't powerful. Even if he's good, he's not powerful because he's not giving us the world that we want. He can't make the world the way it ought to be. I was talking to my son, Cruz, this week. He loves to ask questions, and we were talking about how the world is broken. And he said, Daddy, why did God make the world like that? And I said, well, you know how you have your toys, and you know how sometimes they break? 
I said, usually when they break, it's because you've broken them or your brother's broken them. And he's like, oh, no, it's all, always my brother. But so, so I'm going on and I'm explaining that. And I'm saying God made the world the way it was meant to be. And we came in and broke it. The same way when you break your toys. It's not the fault of the toy maker. It's that we broke it. And it's the same thing in our world. Our world is not the way it's meant to be. God did not make it that way, though. We have broken it. So, the atheist and my son are both making the same mistake, thinking that it is God who has made the world this way, when actually it is us. We have broken the world. So, in creation, how it talks about it is that there was disorder, and God brought about disorder. And the Bible talks about it, that we are the ones who have spun the world into this disorder. We're the ones who've created the external storm in this world. Now, the question is, why has that happened? Why have we done that? And the answer is, because there is an internal storm going on within us. Now, I know that this is not popular to say. Listen, guys, listen. I know that this is not popular for me to say this. Humanity has a problem. We can't seem to get along. We can't seem to agree. And we cannot seem to live at peace with each other. Why is that? Because there's an internal storm going on within us. Not only do we have a corrupted world, but we're corrupted as well. So, for a minute, search deep within you. Search deep within, deep within your gut. And what you'll find is that you're aware that you haven't measured up at least to how you wanted to be. And if you search within your gut, you're going to find that you have not loved people in your life like you ought to have loved them. And if you believe that there's a God that you haven't loved him like you know you ought to have loved him. There is a human propensity to mess things up. What causes the most unrest for me is my own inability for me to live the way that I know I ought to live. I can't seem to do it. And so I search, and, and here's, what it, here's what it comes down to. I look at my actions and I say, man, but not only my actions, it's the motives behind my actions. And I look at the mirror of my soul with disgust. And the popular response would be, David, you gotta learn to love yourself, man. You got to start seeing the positive with what's going on inside of you. Stop being so hard on yourself. Now, I understand what's being said here, but, but at the same time, what is that really doing? What is meant by that? Is it saying take an honest look at yourself and love yourself despite what you find? No, it's saying don't see that part about you. Don't look it's saying, look at the version of yourself that you want to see. Think positive about yourself no matter what you, do, what you see. Now, why do we do this? Why do we want to see the, the version of ourselves that we want to see? It's a survival mechanism. If there really isn't a rescuer, 
and we search within ourselves and find something that we were not hoping to find and there's no rescuer, then that leads us to complete hopelessness. No, I mean, the reality is none of us like to look at something that's rotten. So nobody walks by a trash that obviously smells horrible and says, oh, I wonder what's inside of there. Let me look. And we stick our head in the trash bag and we start looking around. Nobody does that. We take the trash and we take it out to the to the road so that the, the truck takes it to the dump and we don't ever have to see it again. And what the bad news is doing is it's taking us to the places that we don't want to see, the places we don't want to look, the places that scare us, the places that say we don't want to open up the bag and look inside. And so we don't look. We're scared of looking in our heart. Now, here's what that does. It doesn't work. Because of this, you will never learn to love yourself if you do that. Here's why. Because you haven't looked at the real you. If you say learn to love yourself, but you haven't gotten deep within what's going on in your heart with a magnifying glass, then you aren't actually loving yourself, but you're loving the idealized version of yourself. And you will always know that deep down, you never really got in to look at what is really going on. So deep down, you're going to say, well, I've never really seen the real me, so how do I know if I can love me? And you'll never feel of worth, and you'll never be at peace with yourself because you've never really looked in the bag. The only way to be at peace with yourself is to look inside of the bag and see what's really going on. But once you look in, you realize that it, it's actually worse than what you thought. And the, the other thing about it is you can't hide it from God. He sees everything. He sees stuff inside of us that we would never, ever see. Okay, are you ready? And it offends him. It angers him. Okay, so be patient with me now. Remember, I said we're jumping in the waters. We're going to the bad news, okay? And deep down, we know that it's true. We have a sense that there is a God and that we haven't measured up. You have desires for a world that isn't broken and for a you that isn't broken. And you have those desires to you have those you have desires to live like God because you are made in the image of God to live perfectly, just as He has lived perfectly. The left arm of the cross is the waters of God's judgment. Good morning. Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in 1741. And the sermon was called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this sermon started a movement because he wouldn't shy away from the bad news. In fact, during the sermon, people were crying out, what must I do to be saved? More than once, apparently he waited to the end to tell them the good news. So the bad news is that we really are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he hates sin. And there is a storm of it swirling around within us. 
So now you say, well, this is why I didn't want to look in the bag. You know, this sucks. I don't want to hear this. So you have two options with what I've just said. You can dismiss it as untrue. You have every right to dismiss everything that I've said as untrue. But, but here's what you've done by doing this. You've taken God and you've allowed him to be okay with something less than what is perfect. You'd allowed him to be a God that tolerates injustice. You've allowed him to be a God that allows a world to fall out of, to fall into disorder, to fall into corruption, and then to fall ultimately into death. You've, you've created a God that will allow the world to spin out into disorder again. And I'm telling you, that God will not give you the world that you want. But if you're willing and if you're courageous enough to look into the bag and take an honest look about what's going on inside of you, to open up the bag, what you're going to end up discovering, if you stick there long enough, you're going to discover the right arm of the cross, the mighty right arm of the cross of God's love and his grace and his mercy. And it causes you to discover both intention and it lifts up the cross and you look up and you discover the real God. And he's a God that will melt your heart, a God who will quench the deepest hunger of your soul and a God who's going to make you feel like you've been a prisoner, never seeing the sunshine your entire life, and finally the prison doors have opened up, and you've walked out into freedom, and you're feeling the sun on your face for the first time. That's what it feels like to discover the real God, the real God of Christianity. And in order to discover him, you've got to realize that you are in a storm. And the storm of judgment is pointed toward your sin. You got to feel the weight of it. And once you felt the weight of it, what you find is that you have a God who has risen up out of the waters of judgment, disorder, death, and hopelessness. He's risen up out of the waters and he's walking upon those waters and he reaches for your hand so that you would take his hand so that you might walk up above the waters because you're clinging to him as your rescuer. What we have here is a summary of Jesus' mission to you who are drowning in the waters of judgment, death, decay, hopelessness, and he is there to bring you up out of it. Have you ever seen those movies, the really good movies, when it looks like absolutely all hope is lost, like it's time to give up, and then all of a sudden this hero comes up out of the ashes and hope is reborn. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the hero who's come up out of the waters. Jesus is getting us to the point to where we have felt this hopelessness so that it's in that moment, feel that hopelessness when we're feeling it. He comes on the scene and here's what he says. He says, no darkness 
is too, no darkness of hopelessness is too deep. No waves of judgment are too high and no sea of death is too wide for me to come and find you and rescue you up out of those waters. The greater the danger and the greater the fear, the greater that you cling to and reach for a rescuer. The only way for you to cling to Christ the way you were meant to is if you understand the waters that you have fallen into and how he saved you up out of them. So recently I was at a party at someone's house with my family and my kids were there and they have a backyard with a lake. And um, my son recently became scared of bobcats and I didn't know it at the time of what I'm about to tell you. So we're in the backyard, and there's a lake all around, and he goes down to the backyard of one neighbor, and then he's heading to the next neighbor's house. And I'm like, Kale, come back, come back, come back, and he's not listening. And so I said, watch out for bobcats. And he turned around with the scaredest look on his face, running as fast as he could. And I'm like, oh man, I've really messed up. So I go run to him and he comes and he clings onto me and he's holding me tighter than he has ever held me before. Why? Because he's terrified. You know, okay, a parenting fail, yes. But the point is he did it because he was terrified. You will never cling to Christ the way my son was clinging to me unless you understand that you are in the waters and you need to be rescued up out of them. You'll never run to him the way my son was running to me unless you know what is the reality of the bad news. Why is Jesus walking on water, by the way? Is he showing off? Is this like just another one of his miracles? Like, hey, look what I can do, guys. I can walk on water. Look at me. Or is there something deeper going on? We're in John, and we've seen that John is always concerned about the deeper things. And what John is concerned about, what John is showing us here, is that Jesus Christ has come up out of the midst of the waters, risen up above them, and is walking above the waters of judgment, sin, death, decay, chaos. Why? to show us that if we cling to him, we can also. His walking on water is the visual of the good news. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see Peter actually walking out upon the water with Jesus. What it's saying is that through faith, Peter and us, we can also walk out upon the waters as well with him. Peter cannot do it on his own. He can't do it if Jesus isn't already out on the waters and Jesus hasn't already called him out on the waters. Listen, the point of this story of Jesus walking on water and of Peter walking on the water is not that, hey, if you have faith, you can do anything. You could even walk on water. That's not the point. The point is actually far greater than that. The point is that by faith, we can walk above the waters of judgment and of death and of hopelessness. It has no hold on us. 
don't you see this? You'll never look in the mirror to see what's really going on unless you know that you've already been rescued, unless you know that there is a Savior who has risen up above the waters of judgment and has saved you if you, have take, if you take his hand. He holds you up above it. And notice this. The storm doesn't stop when Jesus gets on the scene. But he takes you up upon the shore. The storms of this world that is corrupted, this world that is broken, they're going to keep coming. But it's a lot different when you're, when you're in the midst of a storm on the sea than when you're in the midst of the storm with him on dry land. That's a much different situation. Some of you guys are total stressed out control freaks because you're out on the waters on your own and he's there and he's ready to say I can take control if you'll just come out to me on the waters and just reach your hand for me as a rescuer and some of you can't seem to forgive yourself or love yourself because you don't understand that there is a rescuer who has already rescued you up out of the waters and there's nothing at all to fear because there is no more judgment. You're up above it. The waters are below you. You're above it. And some of you are so unhappy because you aren't realizing that he's not only has he risen up above those waters, but he's building a world for us that is up above the waters. And not only that, is he is bringing us up upon the shore. And we're not in the world that we have been made for yet, but we're on our way. We're walking upon the shore, and our journey has started towards that world. Okay, come on. What I want to do now is I want to bring us deep into the tension of the good news and the bad news so that we might experience Christianity the way that it was meant to be. I want you to picture yourself right now drowning in waters. Drowning, so picture yourself drowning in the waters of judgment, of disorder, and death. You're drowning in them, and you're looking out for a rescuer. The problem is no one can jump into the waters and rescue you because they're going to be in the same situation that you're in. But then you look off at the distance and you catch a glimpse, your eyes barely above the waters, of Jesus walking upon the waters that you are drowning in. And you know that he's a God, but he's a just God. And you know that if he rescues you, if he simply just pulls you out, then he has thrown justice to the side because anything that is wrong has to be swallowed up by judgment and death. And so you know he's a just God. He can't just throw justice out. But at the same time, if he lets you drown, he throws love out. So what's he going to do? He sees the tension. He's found a way to do both. He's found a way to be just and loving. And the answer is by the cross. He holds out his left arm and it's nailed to the cross. He holds out his right arm 
and it's nailed to the cross. The good news and the bad news, nailed to the cross. The justice and love of God intention. And the only way for both to be accomplished, the justice of God and the love of God, is for him to be judged in your place and for him to be killed in your place, for him to be swallowed up by the waters. Okay, so remember, again, remember, picture yourself. You're drowning in the waters, and in order for you to not be drowned, he jumps in, and he jumps all the way in, and he comes up above you, and he holds you up above the waters so that you might live. But as he's holding you up, he's drowning in those waters, and then death takes him. And it seems like all hope is lost, but then he rises in the resurrection. He rises up out of the waters so that you might be up out of the waters forever. It's accomplished. It's finished. The grave is empty. The tomb is empty because we live up above the waters forever through faith. Listen to this. On the cross, Jesus takes on the spiritual judgment, the spiritual death, the spiritual hopelessness that was coming right for us. And on the cross, the Father executes justice upon the head, the wrath, the judgment of God is poured down upon the Son. That was meant for us, it's poured down upon him. He's in the waters drowning, and there's a fire hose shooting down upon him of the wrath and the judgment of God, and he swallows it up, and he the waters take him, and then in the resurrection, he rises up through it. In our place, that's the love of God and the justice of God, both satisfied. Lift your hand up out of the waters and take the hand of the one, the only one who's willing to die in your place, the only one who can do it, die in your place. That is the God that is worthy to be worshiped. Reach for him because he's given up everything so that he might offer you his hand. And by taking it, all judgment is gone. In fact, you are now loved by the Father the same exact way he loves the Son. Everything, you're walking out upon the waters with him. And he sees you as he sees the sun walking up above the waters of judgment and of death and of hopelessness. And he sees you and he has more love for you than you realize. He has found a way to accomplish both. That is the God that you run to. Let's pray.